Hey everyone, I'm here with Laura Gilmore, who is the founder of Wild Muskoka Botanicals, and she is a producer of Artisan Wild Foods, and she also teaches people how to forage locally in a sustainable manner. And her mission is to reconnect people with the natural world and to promote health and wellness through incorporating wild plants and traditional herbal medicines back into people's modern busy lives. So how did you get into wild herbalism, Laura? Um, so I was really fortunate in that I got to have a childhood that was really closely connected to the land. So I was surrounded by incredible mentors um, of people and just my family lived in a pretty close to the land kind of manner. So I feel like that was just a blessing in general. So I grew up with um, my family had a farm. We were down in Niagara at that time. Um, so my dad's side, my family had a farm. So we raised animals, we had gardens. I was one of those kids that just kind of like ran feral through a barn. <laughs> um, you know, that was kind of life. And, and my grandfather was also really, um, he thought it was really important that we were involved with all aspects of food production from, so for, with them, it was mostly meat and then the big, big gardens. So, but yeah. you know, everything from raising chicks to also being there for butchering, um, but from a wild foraging perspective, um, my mom and my stepfather also hunted and fished. So I grew up with wild meat and going out into the woods and food coming from the land. We're, uh, there's, we have An Anishinaabe heritage on my mother's side, so we're Métis. And so my mom was very proud of her Métis heritage and kind of taught us that we are from this land. And so that instilled a pretty just just that concept instilled very young in my life was really important in like shaping me uh -huh. and then the third kind of major influence was as the youngest of four i got sent off to neighbors a lot and the close the person that i got spent a lot of time with was this um my neighbor who was her name is mrs Renali, and she was from italy okay. and she was a retired woman and she would we had she had the most incredible sustainable garden in her yard we we made everything from scratch very traditional Italian. she had her like showy kitchen upstairs but the the whole basement was a production kitchen and she also would take me out picking things and so i was like this four and five year old little girl running around this with this older lady in the woods and i sometimes get to hold the basket she would like to this day i'm still not exactly sure the things we picked but i remember I just, I grew up with the feeling that food came from the land. Okay. And as an adult, kind of when I realized that most people didn't have that basic, what I considered basic knowledge of where food came from, it actually came as quite a shock. Um, Interesting. And then when I pursued ecology um, in post-secondary, um, I just was, as I was learning plants, a natural question for me was always, what are the ways to use it? It wasn't wow. just, I didn't stop, when my botany classes kind of stopped with like, here's the plant, here's the family it's in, here's how to identify it. So it's like naming was as far as you needed to go. Uh -huh. Naming only meant I had more questions. So I just feel really blessed that I've kind of combined like scientific training as well as uh, basically a childhood spent just knowing that that's where food came from. And so as a human being, I feel like we should just know where food comes from. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And have a relationship with our food. Uh, mm -hmm. When you forage in the wild, you really learn a lot about the ecosystem and mm -hmm. uh, you're a big proponent of ethical foraging, which I think is very good because a lot of people are getting more and more into foraging and you really have to really develop this ecological awareness to do it mm -hmm. in a way that doesn't actually damage 
the root yeah. systems and the wider ecosystem. Do you want to maybe talk a little bit about what ethical foraging is and how p people can actually do it in a way that's sustainable and even regenerative to the ecosystem? Yeah, I feel like for me, ethical foraging really comes down to how much you care about the land and the species. So for me, everywhere that I forage are properties that I go back to year after year. They're individual trees that I want to go back to and visit year after year that I'm developing. Literally, it's about building relationship. And so you know, for me, unethical foraging is this idea of like thinking of just going and it's like resource extraction. I'm going to go, I'm going to take this thing that I want, I'm going to leave it, I'm not going to go back. Where all of the places that I choose to forage, I primarily focus on foraging on private land that I've been given permission to. That's really, yeah. um, so that alone is most like I have my own property, which I'm really privileged to be in that place that I have that. But a lot of the places that I forage are, I've been given permission by friends. And so, mm -hmm. you know, human relationships, I want to keep in right relation to not just the people that have given me permission to spend time on their properties and they expect me to care for it, yeah. but to those individual patches of plants, I feel like I have responsibilities to make sure that like they endure, to make sure that I'm also leaving enough um, other, you know, I'm leaving enough fruits or I'm leaving, I'm not disturbing things so that I'm impacting, you know, bird populations that might be nesting in that spot or that I'm taking all of the food from an individual, like say if I'm harvesting berries, even thinking like, oh, even though from a sustainability perspective, you could say, oh, the plant, you, the plant can take you removing all of the berries because that's its reproductive strategy, but you are not the only one that relies on that, mm. you know, fruit. And so, Yes, it gets, it means knowing how each individual plant reproduces and the ecology, but it really comes down to caring. Yes. It's like caring enough to learn about those species and what they need, but also caring enough that you want to be in right relationship with them. And for me, some of the patches that I go to and pick from, they feel, it always feels like old friends. Like I'm going back to see old friends. I wanna know that they're thriving. <laughs> Um, we, we, oh, I always try to use analogies, almost like human relationships. And, and, um, one of my teachers taught me, you know, was talking about this analogy of if you want to know how to, how, like, you have to care enough about a person to get to know them, to understand what they like, what they don't like, how to, you know, when we, we have a close friend and we learn it's their birthday coming up and we're so excited to learn what's a gift that they're really going to love, you know, yeah. we care enough to want to invest in that relationship and it's not that dissimilar with the natural world by spending time out in those places, not just foraging either. So I spend time out in those places even when I'm not foraging, get to know those species, learn what they like, learn what they don't. And sometimes learning that process, I have made mistakes like you do in human relationship. Sure. But it's, you know, every to, to say this is the one way to do sustainable foraging it's so different in any landscape and in any different plant so it can really come down to just wanting to take the time to learn and often it's a slower process than maybe people want that are super excited to go foraging yes, so yes. in that regard <laughs> learn your invasive species and focus on those ones first <laughs> yes yes uh you know, garlic mustard uh, javanese knotweed yeah. like you know, you got your work cut out for you just looking for those species and harvesting them. <laughs> yeah. So like they're great for, for people that want to get into foraging and are excited and like keen and want to get going. And like 
the other more native or more sense like the native species and the native yeah. ecosystems move into those relationships more slowly. Yes, that's uh, very, very important. Uh, and it's amazing when you learn about the forest, uh, how much is actually invasive. Uh, um, and all these kind of like, a, a, when an ecologist walk and he talk a lot about seeds and how a lot of plants you see are, he called them like ghost plants, I think, and that like, they're not replicating anymore. And they're, they're just like these lineages of, of plants that are dying out. And you see it, but it won't be around in, in 30 years. Yeah. So it's yeah. interesting how the landscape is changing. Yeah, and the landscape, I mean, it's, it is challenging, especially in more densely populated areas, um, like closer to southern Ontario or other parts, closer to major cities. That's yeah. common. But to be honest, in Canada, in Ontario, and specifically, we've actually had an increase in forest cover over the last 30 years. So as much as it can be really disheartening to think about um, the changes that are coming. Nature is also incredibly resilient. Yes. So, so I don't think, yeah, so things are changing, but ecosystems are actually being quite resilient, showing to be quite resilient. Mm -hmm. Yes, it is quite remarkable. Like the plant intelligence, the ecosystem intelligence that mm -hmm. is in a forest. Um, and yes, and when, when a forest is damaged, how it can, you know, in some ways, even like humans, it can become more resilient through mm -hmm. that, that adversity. Um, are there any plant kind of teachers or certain plants that have really shaped you and really maybe helped your health, uh, really that really draw you in when you're in the forest? Hmm. Um, I really, I really work a lot with the tree medicines. Um, okay. So white pine, the, so the conifer trees. Um, so where I live in Muskoka, um, our landscape is really almost characterized by coniferous trees people kind of think about what Muskoka or the nor Northern Canada would look like and they close their eyes and think of a mental image, it's pretty much going to contain coniferous trees. Oh yeah. Um, and so I love working with those individuals. Um, they provide food and shelter and medicine year round. Um, they're also incredibly, you know, half of my house is built out of those trees and I can, yes. harvest, yeah, I can like, I've made such incredible respiratory medicines or I just, you know, can roast my potatoes with their seasonings and they're just such giving organisms over and over again. Um, so those, and then also some of, we were really blessed to have some like old white pines that grow on our property and just okay. sitting with those trees sometimes and thinking about what they've seen in the time that they've been standing. Um, so I feel like I get medicine from the conifer trees um, that kind of go across all levels. But there's definitely been lots of um, specific medicinal herbs that I've worked with. Um, one really interesting one, there's a plant called Solomon Seal. Uh, oh, yeah? Yeah, that I, I've worked with quite a bit. I had to get um, both the ACLs and my knees reconstructed a few years ago. Okay. So that was a really powerful healing journey of having to really rely on Western medicine to do this really complex, you know, surgery on my body. And then as an herbalist for years, I actually kind of didn't want to embrace Western medicine in that way, but then hit a point where realizing like herbs weren't going to heal those torn ligaments. And so I was going to need this surgery. Uh, those are actually some of the best procedures for Western medicine. When they treat you like a machine, they're yeah. really good at that part. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, they're really good at that part. So I was able to get the surgery and then I really worked with herbs in the healing phase, which is where Western medicine kind of like, 
doesn't really offer you much. Okay. Um, and Solomon Seal um, is one of these incredible herbs that can really help with the connective tissue in the joints. And so, yeah, so um, in healing that new connective tissue that the surgeon had kind of helped reinstate in my knees, that was a really powerful one. And it was, it was interesting because even the before surgery, like I could, I could find that plant almost anywhere. Like I would just be, in a, and I could, it was like it would glow in the forest. And it was even a few weeks before the surgery, I remember being in the woods and like almost having this like craving that I just wanted to like eat the roots. And it's not a plant that normally you'd even, it is an edible, but to see that through building relationship with this plant, I was actually like finding myself like craving it. And then I was able to go out in the woods and like find it like really easily. Like I would just be drawn to spots and find it. And then I was actually even at a place and someone like one of the places I was foraging and someone like an older couple were like, Oh, we're getting a new deck bill. We have to rip out of these gardens. Do you want to come look at the plants and see if you want any? And it was like a giant patch of Solomon seal. And it was like, Oh my God, like this plant that I've been calling in. Cause I, I knew that this surgery was coming and it was a medicine that I knew I wanted to work with. And like, it just kind of like from all fronts started just showing itself to me was like a really powerful like experience I've had. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Then, yeah, it's interesting you, you kind of had this relationship with that plant and you kind of mm-hmm. um you kind of had this sense that maybe that would it would heal you even. Um uh, are, are you familiar with like the the doctrine of plant signatures? Of, yeah. Um how is how does that work exactly where certain plants the shape uh, the colors and whatnot can actually signal that they can heal different parts of the human body? Yeah, it's, it's one of the tools we can use to look at plants um, and kind of pull out what it might be good for. Um, so in the case of the Solomon seal, the roots of the Solomon seal are really white and the actual leaf scar. So each year it sends up a new um, leaf scar, our new leaf, uh, new mm-hmm. shoot. And when that plant, that stem dies back and the plant keeps growing, it leaves behind this scar that actually kind of looks like the kneecap. And so here you have like this bone white root that actually looks like joints as it's going along. And so it, that would be an example of like, so that's a doctrine or signature that if you looked at that root, it would be like, oh yeah, this looks like bone. And it looks, mm. looks like that part of the anatomy. Um, it's very interesting that it actually is then found to have that. So sometimes that's, that can be balanced. It can help be an indicator for potential properties that a, a plant has, but like, yeah. I'm also a scientist. So I yeah. often find I will look at those types of things, but then I go and see, can I find kind of scientific evidence like constituents or properties yes. or studies where people have found, you know, and I, I'll balance things that way a bit too because it's so part of me and so interested in the fact that these plants are actually old a lot of these plants are older than humans like older than species so it's like huh like did humans form so if the doctrine of signatures is true i have lots of questions around um at what state like if humans are, are younger than the plants did we did our bodies literally form from them or from, from intelligence from them? I don't know. It's like big questions. Yeah, well, plant intelligence, uh, sentience around us, there's all these big, big questions. Yeah. Um, and it is interesting. Um, 
about how you can combine a lot of this ancient, uh, more ancestral knowledge mm -hmm. with the, the scientific kind of ability to look at, at it with microscopes and test yeah. it in different ways. Um, and often, you know, in many ways they can come together. Yeah. Um, they're kind of different ways of looking at it. And science is this beautiful thing for kind of figuring things out, but it's not so good at creating meaning and, uh, and this connection uh, with people in the land. Uh, so it is interesting um, what you do really not only foraging um, for your company, Wild Muskoka, yeah. the products you sell, but you're also very passionate about teaching people about these skills. Yeah. Yeah. So for me taking, like, I'm actually quite introverted, so I would be quite happy to just like hide in the forest and make products and do my <laughs> thing. But going out and teaching um, actually feels like my service to the plants in some ways and to the ecosystems that I live in um, because I'm quite aware that people are interested in foraging like so people want this knowledge um, which is great because it used to just I mean I've been doing this since I was a kid I was always that weirdo that was interested in plants <laughs> where now everyone wants it so it's, it's wonderful um, but it for me it very much feels like taking people out and like introducing people to my friends and sharing their stories because it's like I, for me and the way that I've been kind of taught working with plants is that they're void, like to learn to hear them. They're really quiet. It's like, yeah, they're, they're really quiet voices. So it's like, I have to be this little, this voice that can help like translate plant speak. Um, so yeah. So I love taking people out and sharing um, or I do. I mean, I love it, but it's also, it's, a, it's an edge for me, but it often, it feels like my service work to share about the plants for people. And I also, I just want to make sure that people in my community, if they are going to be going out, are doing it safely and responsibly. Yeah. Um, and I'm really happy when I, you know, sometimes on social media, we'll see students of mine like going and making comments and telling people to like harvest responsibly or like sharing little tips that I've shared. And again, just sharing that we, I think even just sharing the diversity. Often when we go, when I take people on foraging walks, um, I think people expect that maybe I'll just cover the big popular, you know, wild foods, like just leeks or fiddleheads or we're just yeah. like mushrooms where I'm like, often I start right in the lawn and I'm like, all right, everybody look down, like the very plants you're standing on right now, dandelion and plantain and clover and daisy are, we can, we could sit here for an hour just talking about these simple plants. And I will definitely cover, um, if we see them, some of those more popular wild foods and more often my words are around caution and around understanding and responsibility yeah. if you're going to harvest certain wild foods. But I think I also just want people to realize how much really out is out there mm -hmm. um, and that we, it's quite we, like we're in a very safe area to harvest and small amounts can help like it, it can just be small nuts treating wild foods like spices like tea every once in a while i really feel it can just help to and keep building relationship with the natural world and even if it's on a super small energetic microscopic level reshift our our internal chemistry to be aligned with the natural world so i think it's really important to again and as someone who grew up with food knowing food came from the land i'm shocked that people are so disconnected now so i'm like everyone needs to know this <laughs> it's like it's like common knowledge it should be common knowledge again 
Yeah, I, and I think today people are starting to really re wake up to the point, mm -hmm. th the fact that uh, industrial farming destroys the soil. Yeah. And uh, when the soil has been destroyed and you have to use all these fertilizers and chemicals and fungicides to actually make something grow and look half decent, um, yeah. it's uh, not good for your health in the long term. Um, so it's interesting about kind of, I'm very interested in mycelium and mushrooms and, and regenerative yeah. soil. Um, what are your thoughts about mushrooms and, uh, and their connection in, in the ecosystems? Oh, I mean, mushrooms are incredible organisms. Um, they basically like the molecular dissemblers, like they're kind of halfway between us and plants in some ways. Um, <laughs> and so they're, they're amazing. As a forager, like I've always been a, a plant focused, but it's like they're the kind of they're more tricksters, like they can be there one week and then not be. Yes, yes. <laughs> so when I do foraging walks, I tend to tell people like, if we see mushrooms, great, but like, I can't promise anything because you never know with those guys. Um, <laughs> so they, they really are incredible medicine and the way that they pretty much across the board, almost every species of mushroom where I am, or every edible or medicinal species where I am in Ontario, has an effect their effect on the immune system um is what really affects. so it's like they are these tonics in terms of like consuming them regularly over time really help to realign our immune systems and in our modern context there's so much um there's so many chronic issues that can be rooted back to imbalances in the immune system and so i think about the role that those medicines have um, and the, there's also the relationship that some of the medicinal mushrooms in particular that grow on the trees mm -hmm. i think about the way that the way that they're kind of even interfacing and and changing the chemistry of what they absorb from the plants and then put something like i think about all the medicinal mushrooms that grow on the birch trees chaga like people talk about chaga but it's pretty much yeah every mushroom that grows on the birch trees it's the betulinic acid from the birch that's then converted by the mushrooms and made into a form that then um, has this really strong effect on our immune system so i think okay. about the fact that they're also acting as this intermediary between us and the plants for some some ways so um i spend a lot of time like i i'm very i'm still learning a lot about mushrooms but there's so much more again like that idea of the mycelium so much more under the surface um and then <laughs> yes. we don't know like the more i learn about mushrooms the more i realize we i don't know and i think it's an incredible field of research that i'm really glad to see so many people starting to really look at but again like anything we have to make sure that we're treating them with respect yeah the mushroom medicines i there's like a, a there's a a way of looking at it that how abundant they are in the landscape should if should inform how often you use them. So if something isn't that common or grows really slowly, it it's that's the indicator that it's something that shouldn't be used all the time for everything. Yeah. If it's if it's kind of rare in the landscape, then we use it as very special medicine. So um, I know in particular in where I live, traditional Anishinaabe healers did use the chaga mushroom, but because it was not common and it grows so slowly, it was reserved for the very sick. 
And so something I just often, like I would like to see with people using plants and mushrooms, but to look at how common is it, um, how abundant is it, and then we should be informing the way that we use it to make sure that it exists long after we're gone. Yeah. Yeah, it's good that you touched on chaga because you know, chaga is like a new health craze, you know, a superfood that can do all this amazing stuff to your body and shrink tumors and boost your immune system and adaptogenic. But there's also very, uh, there's other mushrooms, you know, like reishi and oyster mushrooms and, and uh, other mushrooms that you can grow like lion's mane at home, you know, very easily in your backyard by seeding them on a log, you know, um, so chaga, we have to kind of chip it out of a tree and it's actually kind of healing the tree in a way too. It's, it can damage the tree severely um, yeah. when you take it all and everything. So yeah, it is interesting what you, you touched on that because there is this big ethical issue around it, particularly in chaga yeah. Um, yeah. where, you know, it's people want it and uh, you know, it's big in coffee and tea and now all these things. Uh, but I always wonder, like, where does it actually come from? Because there, there really is no way to, me- to domesticate chaga, as far as I know. Not at this point, no. I mean, I know, I, I do know people that are working on it. Um, yeah. But it has a very, compared to other mushrooms, it does have a very different growth strategy. And it, it doesn't spore very easily. Interesting. Yeah. And one of the things I love about mushrooms is that, you know, when you use a wicker basket, you can actually help spread Mm. the spores more widely. So they kind of have this close relationship as plants do as well, but a very interesting relationship with people um, where people have a strong foraging culture, you'll find more mushrooms. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And it's interesting up in Muskoka where you are, there's definitely a big foraging culture. Um, But there's also cultures that are very mycophobic. Oh, yeah. um, that just kind of like stay away from the mushrooms. They're dangerous. Uh, but then you have these cultures like Finland and, and Russian cultures and Eastern Europe uh, and Asia um, where, you know, mushrooms are like an obsession almost. Uh, yeah. Which is, uh, I think, very interesting. Yeah. And here all- I, t- I tell people that if it looks like what you buy in the grocery store, probably stay away from it. And the in like Muskoka in particular, the like our culinary mushrooms, the ones that we pick for food, are often the really weird looking ones like they're bright yellow chanterelles or they're like these weird twisted black trumpets or they're lobster mushrooms which are just these weird red orange blobs but like something that looks like a white button mushroom could be destroying angel so yes (laughs) i've seen destroying angel a few times and it's kind of creepy looking actually yeah but stunningly beautiful at the same time like it's such a beautiful white gilled mushroom yeah <laughs> you go to pick a, a lobster mushroom and you show it to people like oh we're gonna eat this for dinner and people are like are you sure that that's edible it's like really deformed and yes red orange um so i laugh about that morels like they're so weird looking people they are little weird brains i had a beekeeper friend who <laughs> said oh they look like queen cups so i'm like that's the perfect analogy that you and like not many other people will get <laughs> So any beekeepers watching this will be like, oh yeah, morales look exactly like queen cups, but very weird <laughs> looking. Um, but yeah, typically here, the, the weird mushrooms, the weird looking mushrooms are more likely the edible ones. <laughs> Not that that's across the board, but things that I t- typically tell my students, like you have to learn 100%, you learn them. But typically the brown, white, gilled mushrooms are large groups that I just avoid entirely. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The death cap also falls in there. And uh, I know in Vancouver, it's uh, become a huge problem yeah. uh, in the city. Uh, dogs will eat it and uh, people um, will point out and wonder what it is. And uh, it, that's a, a very dangerous mushroom. Yeah. Um, another interesting mushroom, I think, uh, that also kind of sparks a lot of interest is the Amanita muscaria, yeah. uh, which grows, you know, typically with birch and uh, you see that. And, and people are always kind of fascinated by that mushroom just because of the ancient lore around it yeah. and whatnot. Um, do you find much of that around uh, Muskoka? Oh, we find that mushroom. Um, I wouldn't say there's much of a local lore around it other than if people, more often that the species that's here, it's the, the orange one. Um, mm -hmm. Okay. Probably just be sick and not quite, it wouldn't quite have the psychoact. I don't think it quite has quite the psychoactive properties. But the way you, you mentioned that it grows with birch, um, I get a lot of people that come on foraging walks with their primary focus of harvesting mushrooms. And I often tell people that if they want to harvest mushrooms, they need to first learn their trees. Because yes, yes. if you don't know your trees, um, you, for one, it's like sometimes a good like an important identification feature from one species of mushroom to another is actually the trees that it's growing with. Um, so we tend to get really, micro when we're out in the forest foraging like i'm going to focus on just what i'm looking at or i get photographs from people that want identification and it's just the mushroom and i'm like i ask them about the habitat and there's no awareness at all of whether which what whether there were trees or what trees were growing in the area ah. so i kind of tell people like habitat is just as important as knowing the individual identification features for that mushroom. So if you want to be a good mushroom hunter, you need to learn your trees. Also, because mushrooms are so small or often weird looking or look like the soil or morels, like they look like pine cones. Yes. Um, often for me with foraging, I get into a habitat that has a certain feel or look where I see certain characteristics in the tree patterns or the types of trees that are growing or the slopes and those ecosystem patterns are actually what trigger me to start looking for certain species of mushrooms so it's like you don't it's almost like a good mushroom hunters hunting habitat more than individual mushrooms because they if you're moving quickly through the forest you're going to miss them Oh yeah. But I will get into certain types of like if it's August and I'm in certain types of balsam fir hemlock stands near water, I kind of like I've seen it, I've seen that pattern so many times when I've picked chanterelles that now when I'm in it's if it's the right time of year and I hit a certain forest type that just looks a certain way, I kind of slow down and I'm like, oh, this looks really chanterelle for me. Chantrelli, it's like a funny term, but it's <laughs> it slows me down and then I start looking. So that might that for me, that's some of the magic of working with mushrooms. It's like you don't know if you're gonna find them, but if you want to be and I've heard that that was advice given to me by other really experienced mushroom hunters was you gotta learn to you gotta learn to hunt habitats um, and not just the mushrooms. And again, there's a it I love that because it helps people move out of just I'm going to grab this thing that I want and actually yeah. slowing down and having a bigger awareness. So that's one thing I think mushrooms can, I think are gifting the world is like helping people have a bigger awareness. And then their story of how they relate is so fascinating. 
that I think it's actually like that, that fascination and that is like inspiring people to like look at things a little differently. Yeah, it's interesting what you said about reading the forest and reading the environment and the tree species and the habitat. Um, yeah, it's really valuable to develop that kind of sensory awareness. Mm-hmm. And yes, it is, it is so true about the seasons with mushrooms. Like in the fall, you're going to find so much, a little less in the spring. In the summer, maybe not so much at all in some areas. But if you know where to look, you can always find mushrooms. Uh, mm-hmm. Not always the exact ones you want, but um, you can find so much. And even for me, I, I love mushroom foraging. I've always been very active with the mycology societies. And I'm always still discovering mushrooms I've never seen before. Yeah. And that's one thing I love about mushrooms is how mysterious they are. And uh, it's a bit like a rabbit hole. Yeah. Um, the more you learn, the more you realize you don't know about the mushroom and the mycelium. Yeah. Um, maybe one final question here. Um, are you optimistic about the future? Hmm. Um, from the planetary perspective, I would say yes. Yep. Um, so something that like in my short lifespan, I think that, we've seen a lot of change. Um, a plant that I've been spending time with recently, and I've been thinking about this a lot, is what's happening with American beach. So there's a disease called beach bark disease that's affecting our beach trees. And beach trees are one of the most important uh, canopy trees in our area. And the reality is that in the next, you know, probably 30 years, 20, 30 years, we're gonna lose 95%, maybe less. We're gonna lose 95% of our beach trees. And that's a really shocking statistic. Everyone's kind of like, oh my God. And everyone asks, what can we do? And I'm like, well, the reality is, is that it's going to take many decades before we can even realize. So that the 95 that are lost means that there's 5% that will survive. So within that 5%, there will be resistant individuals. Those resistant individuals will set seed and it'll take probably... American beach and the forests here several hundreds of years to recover from that disease coming through. But in the end, what it'll be, so, you know, four or 500 years from now, American beach, my hope is, is still here because Mm -hmm. that 5% managed to make it through. But that time scale is something that's really hard for humans to accept that it might take hundreds of years for the recovery. And So when I think about nature in general, the planet, the planet has gone through extinction crises, species have come, but but life has actually been extremely resilient. And so that aspect, you know, I don't believe humans need to save the planet. Um, Humans need to save ourselves. So if nature is extremely resilient and will come back in potentially new forms, but um, humans, it's, we've got the next few decades to really show whether we have what it takes to survive. And that's on us. It's not saving the planet. We've got to figure out whether we can come in relationship with the planet and hope the planet actually saves us. So. Yeah. High consequences. Uh, We have to adapt and evolve and uh, really live up to our potential uh, today. So uh, thank you very much for sharing all your knowledge and wisdom. Um, Laura, where can people find out more about you? Yeah, so you can find me um, online, uh, wildmuskoka.com. I'm also on Instagram and Facebook, and um, I'm around the internet sphere. 
Um, you can find me often in the Muskoka to Toronto areas, different events. Um, if you're up in the Muskoka area, you can come on a foraging walk with me. Um, and hopefully I will see some people at events. You can always say whether you saw this um, interview or not. Um, and otherwise I hope people safe and happy foraging. Thank you very much, Laura.